Is your car no longer stopping like it used to? Don't miss out on spring brake deals at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Our professional parts people will help you find the brake parts and supplies you need to do the job right the first time. You'll find great deals on brake pads and rotors, fluids, degreasers, and more. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Thank you for listening to BRC and Friends. This is another episode that is done in partnership between First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto and BRC and Friends. In this series, you're going to be hearing from candidates for the Palo Alto City Council. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. My name is Bruce Reyes-Chow, and this is BRC and Friends. Each episode, I chat with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers to discuss politics, faith, pop culture, technology, and as you will discover, pretty much everything else that pops into our heads. This is basically an excuse for me to hang out with friends and colleagues and riff about things that matter. Welcome to BRC and Friends. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto webinars, a place where we engage the hearts and minds of academics, artists, authors, and community leaders. Uh, I'm Bruce Reyes Chow. I'm the pastor here at the church. Today's webinar is part of a series where I'm interviewing 2020 candidates for Palo Alto City Council. In this series of interviews, I hope not only to get to know the issues that are important to each candidate, but also to get to know the person behind the politician. We'll be taking questions later, so please, please use the Q&A feature, and we'll get to those later in the program. This webinar will be recorded and shared on our church YouTube channel, as well as our IGTV channel, and then it'll post as an audio on my podcast, BRC and Friends. So today, uh, I welcome uh, City Council candidate Ed Lowing. Uh, if you could just go ahead and start, tell us who you are. Like, give us, uh, you know, who is who is Ed? Who is Ed? It depends on how far back you want to go, but... Uh, oh, whatever, whatever you think would be interesting for us. We have an hour to sit down and chat, so okay. go for it. Well, I, I started life in the, in the Midwest, uh, and the best part about that is I brought the Midwestern work ethic with me to California. So uh, did, did all, my, uh, all my schooling there in central Indiana at DePauw and uh, Nashville, Tennessee with Vanderbilt, and then up uh, while I was working in uh, University of Minnesota for my MBA. So um, I, was, I was started out in retail, with the B. Dalton chain, which is part of Dayton Hudson, now Target. And uh, they came out here to join Sunset Books in Menlo Park as the marketing manager, and then was just ecstatic about being in the Valley and risk-taking buzz and the excitement of what you could do in business there and fail three times and succeed once and you're phenomenally successful. So uh, I got that itch and I went into the software industry, started a, started a division within a bigger company called Software Publishing Corp and eventually made that profitable in a couple of years, spun it out as my own company and ran that for a long time. Did two other software companies. Uh, the second one was in internet and the third one was in uh, uh, enterprise software. And then uh, that, at the end of that time frame, uh, about 12 years ago, I started doing executive recruiting. So I just moved to the other side of the table and found it for some of those tech companies. So vocationally, that's, that's, uh, that's my background and educationally, that's my background. In, in terms of community, um, basically, as soon as we got to, um, I, I, as soon as we got married, <clears throat> uh, my wife and I were living in Menlo Park, and she said, after my my daughter first born was two, she said, "Well, we need to move to Palo Alto." 
I said, well, what, what, why do we need to do that? I said, well, the schools are good. I said, well, the schools are great in Menlo Park. I said, well, <laughs> there's just, you know, there are really great people there. And I said, okay. And she's from Palo Alto. And I didn't quite get it. And I said, okay, I guess we're moving to Palo Alto. So we did. And now 33 years later, uh, you know, I've loved it here. And uh, I'm only a couple blocks from the, your church and the neighborhood. So uh, I love this neighborhood as well. It's very community oriented, which is kind of the point in Palo Alto to have a real community feeling and block parties and walk around and see your neighbors and take walks and, and so on. So um, and I've been involved in a lot of community service uh, in, in a variety of ways. I worked uh, uh, for a while with, uh, uh, first of all, with it was called uh, Urban Ministry of Palo Alto, which merged into InVision. And myself and a couple other two were instrumental in getting that thing merged for you know much more stability and um, expansion in terms of regional growth, in terms of how we could help the homeless and, and the hungry and people that needed services like uh, addiction and medical services. Mm -hmm. Uh, very rewarding. I helped get the Opportunity Center up that's behind uh, um, Town & Country uh, in terms of when I finished the, the merge, I stayed on the board and kind of got more centered in uh, San Jose. Uh, but that was that was great. Love, love that kind of work. And then did a lot of stuff in youth baseball and was president of uh, Babe Ruth Baseball League for five years. And uh, then I moved into commissions and spent seven years on the Parks Commission in Palo Alto, and now three and a half on the Planning Commission. So stepping out of wonderful meetings every week on parks into very uh, difficult meetings every week on all the <laughs> tough problems that we have in, in Palo Alto. Sure. Uh, so that brings us to the present time, and, uh, and, and, and now my decision to, uh, you know, to run for council. All right. So what, what spurred you into going ahead and, and, and throwing your name out there and joining, uh, you know, nine others and, and running for city council? That's what a lot of my friends are asking me with big question marks at the end uh, and a few exclamation points. Um, uh, somebody said a few months ago, what are, your, what are your hobbies? And I said, actually, when I think about it, my hobby is watching council meetings. Um, I'm just very uh, involved in the local community because of the issues I'm dealing with on PTC and because of my just my basic interest in them. And I spend hours Monday night listening to council and then sometimes I'm screaming at the screen uh, about what's going on. So I said, you know, what this tells me is that it's time, you know, it's time. And it, as the pandemic came and things got really rough and I saw that the problems were getting bigger. Uh, it kind of gave me more of a juice to say my background really fits with what needs to be done because I've got some experience in business and experience in the city. And my experience in business has been the full spectrum of great highs and great lows, as, as you find in startups, not unlike some of the things we're facing now in the city. So I just felt that the timing was right relative to my background and you know how I was sort of emotionally feeling as well as I watched council meetings and talked to council members. Great. Great. Thank you. Well, I'm new to Palo Alto. I've been at the church yeah. for now about a year. Uh, yeah. Moved from San Francisco. Was there for 30 years. Did so most of my growing up, started college there, got married, the whole raised our kids, all but one, did all their schooling in San Francisco. One will finish up here uh, as a senior now uh, at, at Gunn. Um, and so we're new, uh, and there's lots of things we're beginning to love about Palo Alto, but as a, as a new person, we also get to see the city with, uh, you know, different eyes, and um, we're trying to figure out, like, 
what do we love? What are we trying to work towards fixing all that? But let me ask you, why, why do you love Palo Alto? You, you moved from, you know, uh, from, from Menlo Park to Palo Alto. And what, what, what has grabbed you about Palo Alto? Why do you love this place? Yeah, and before Menlo Park, I was in Minneapolis. So the transition there was... Uh, well, that, that's where my oldest child is right now. So uh, it's yeah. cold there. Uh, <laughs> Very cold there. Very civic oriented, though. That's one of the things yes, I love that is true. Minneapolis. Um, so, you know, there, there are surveys done from time to time about why, why do you, did you want to come to Palo Alto? And the, the predictions are always that it's going to be because of the schools, you know, which are top rated in the state. And or because of the trees, because Palo Alto is well known for the trees. And, and, and both of those always score high, but, but number one is usually answers like the people, meaning the people that are already here. Uh, and, um, and, and then some folks just talk about more broadly, you can actually, it's a, it's a family situation where you can actually have community and meet your neighbors and so on. So it's, it's, it's to scale is another way I like to think of it. Um, you know, the, the people, you, you can choose not to, uh, but it's easy to just meet your neighbors and get together with them. So I, I think for me that that's it. Um, you know, it, it was, it, it, that's more Midwestern to me, I guess, uh, that, you know, here, when I first got to California, I said, you know, everybody's got a fence around it. What's with that? It just wasn't what I was used to, you know, it was just land and also a lot bigger houses. So that was part of the answer is we didn't need one. Right. <laughs> Uh, it's not sending up, you know, bad signals, and it's just kind of the way it was, and and yet it does kind of, you know, shut you off from your neighbors when you can't see them through the fence. But I think there's an opportunity here in Palo Alto and most most neighborhoods to kind of cultivate that, um, you know, quite quite seriously. You know, when somebody mm-hmm. just comes to the neighborhood, you tend to invite them over. Uh, when when a high school kid down the block who we don't even know, but we know their parents was graduating, you know, most of the neighbors went over there and gave him cheers and stuff like that when he came out to do the car caravan uh, that was really successful at uh, graduation time. So I think, I think it's the, the community. And the second thing is, you know, what would generally be called amenities. There's some pretty unique things here. Not every, not every uh, town has a, a children's theater or a, a children's zoo or even a children's library. Uh, they don't have, you know, separate wide open spaces like we do in four spots and 36 other parks, you know, so, so there's, there's just a lot here. And, and the people going back to that, I mean, the people are all just very highly educated themselves and therefore have a high bar for their children to also be highly educated, which fits with the, the match up to the school system. So those are some of the top priorities that I was looking at. Great. Thank you. It's interesting. I mean, as a new person here, we, I mean, it's been great. Well, we haven't like that, the neighborhood thing. I want, you know, I wonder if, if it's when you came in or what's happening or what, like what generations of movement and as new people are moving in, is it, is it different now? Um, um, as, as we're here for a year now and, you know, we're, we're committed to be here for a while. Um, it's interesting to see how just, culture around changes about how neighborhoods work these days, especially right. if we, if we find ways for new people to move in, um, which I know has been, is we'll talk about a little bit about housing, but let me ask you then, what do you think are the collective challenges for Palo Alto looking into the future? Uh, what do you think are the things that we really need to begin to work on as a community? What are the, what are the um, obstacles ahead about, and I'll ask you later about what do you hope will become, but what do you think some of the challenges coming up are for uh, Palo Alto? Well, the, the, the main one that I feel is a, 
that people are united on. Um, I got a question this morning in a in an interview about, you know, do you think that there's polarization in the community? We, we know there is on council, is there in the community? And I think my answer was, yeah, there is on, on some issues, but there are some other issues that they're really together on, and that's where we should kind of start. So the one issue that I think is real, it's important, it's a value system, it's ethics, and that's getting more affordable housing built. Um, we, we can talk about it at any level of detail you want, but on this subject, uh, you know, to me, that's a value statement in terms of the kinds of neighbors that we should have in, in our community. And no matter who I talk to and what their job is or what neighborhood they live in, every time I raise that question or just generally what do you think is important, that's what I get back. So I think this, I think Palo Alto is unified conceptually that we need um, more affordable housing because some of them characterize it as my kid can never live here. Uh, some of them characterize it as, um, you know, I don't want just tech executives living next door to me. Um, but and a lot of them say that, you know, the, the, the guy that makes my coffee, I want him to live here too, and he can't afford it. So all of those are saying the same thing, is that we need, you know, the, this lower income um, citizen uh, as a neighbor. And to do that, we have to do some building of affordable housing. So that has to get a lot of attention. There's going to be disagreements on the details, but I think that that's, you know, not only value and important and crucial, I'm escalating it to an emergency. I think we really, really, really have to put that old phrase, all the wood behind that arrow and um, make that happen. Right. Well, I think that we'll definitely talk. Uh, let's just go into it now. We'll switch around the questions a little bit. But I think one of the things I've noticed is that I, I agree. I think when we've, I've talked with people, even in our congregation, and as I'm getting to know community members, everybody would say, yes, affordable housing. But everybody's idea of what affordable housing looks like and what it might be and, and where it would look located and, and what are concepts that would actually work. See, that even that next step in seems to be pretty divisive, right? Are we talking about, uh, are we willing to go up a few more stories on California Avenue? Are we looking at El Camino? If nobody wants an eight story thing plopped down in the middle of a, you know, a, a residential neighborhood, I think everybody agrees on that. But these other pieces, so what are some of your ideas then as you're moving forward with this, how would you, how would you approach affordable housing then? What are, what are some of the things that you would see that you would really kind of champion? Um, and then what are some of the critiques of that? I always act to know like, what would be the pushback on those? So, so if, you're, if, you got, if you got to decide, like here's how we're gonna do it, what does that look like from Ed Lowing? So the, the first thing, of course, the driver of all this is land. And we're not getting any more land in Palo Alto. <laughs> that, that's not gonna happen. We're not gonna fill in the bay. So we have to accept that constraint and then, you know, the, then you just tick through the, the, uh, the physics of that. That means we go up if we want more in the same spot, or we go down or if we go want down. more in the same spot, or we take what's there off and build something else. Um, that, that's, that's the only options. So with that in mind, I would say um, we can get to financing later. But I think that we have to be open now that I've declared it an emergency, I think, we can, I, think, I think we need to be open to what you do in an emergency, which is, you know, you don't do the same thing you've done before. 
in terms of what that looks like and the heights and the widths and so on. That's point one. Point two, the same issue with respect to land is that it's contextual. So if we were going to, let's say, to get, as realtors say, I'm sorry, as developers say, to get this to pencil out, we can't do a 50-foot building. We need 65. Okay. So if we need to do that, is this 65-foot building going to go in Old Palo Alto, like one example you already gave? Is it going to go at the Stanford Research Park where there's a few buildings and a lot of grass? Is it going to go at um, Palo Alto Square where there are already three, four tower kind of things of probably 14 feet high? Um, those are important decisions because I could say yes to the latter on a, um, in my example, I think I gave a 65-foot building, and I could say no to that same 65-foot building in Palo Alto because it doesn't fit the context of the neighborhood um, and all the other things that you look at in terms of infrastructure and, and, and way of life and so on. Um, and, and unless that be, just so that's not interpreted as some sort of uh, racist thing, which is sometimes being talked about, I'm only talking about architectural context in, in every neighborhood. So I am open to, I think that the 50 foot height limit, which is here, is a good guideline and starting point. And we've gotten, we have a nice town because we've had that. But if we find a 65 foot building in, in Palo Alto Square, that's gonna give us 200 units of true affordable housing. So 200 new families or unit people can move here. I'm gonna be in that meeting in a nanosecond trying to figure out how to make that happen. Right. So, so you wouldn't necessarily, you, there's a flexibility. You like, you like some of the guidelines now, but there is some flexibility should, you know, I mean, I think we're going to require some creativity. And I think that's the thing about Palo Alto that, you know, people tell me all the time that we're innovative and creative. And then there, there are certainly elements where it, it feels fairly regressive in some ways and, and trying to be, so I like that. I mean, I think that's good. We need to figure out new ways of being able to do that. I think that, that's great. Well, let me, let me go to um, a question that I'm asking everybody as well and, uh, is around, you know, issues that have been happening in, in our country, in Palo Alto around racism and police reform and all of those things. I think, you know, we're, we're not going to solve everything here as a community, but I, I do think as a small town, which I kind of love, we have an opportunity to, to, to be a laboratory in some ways, but um, just talk a little bit about how you've responded, what you think about these conversations about institutional racism and then our impact on policing. And, and you can talk about however, wherever you kind of stand in that, there's, you know, reform, there's defund, there's reallocate, there's abolish, there's all kinds of ways of thinking. But I just want to give every candidate an opportunity to talk a little bit about their perspective around institutional racism and policing in Palo Alto. Yeah, you, you ticked off the options quite quite well. Um, so, I mean, there's no question that there's um, embedded racism in people in the United States, and 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 that's true of California. What we have to do, and we're looking at our local, is we have to figure out how extensive is that in our in our own force, uh, and and what we need to do. So, you know, Minneapolis is not necessarily St. Paul or Rochester or whatever, but we can't have our head stuck in the ground and saying nothing's there. So the, the plan that's already started here, first of all, is yeah, we need to look at this and we should be 
you know, I hate to use the word thankful because that's not the word, but, but we should take this moment in history where people have died uh, to say now's the time. And so we are in Palo Alto. And the first step was to get a bunch of ad hoc committees going on council, which I think was actually a great first step. That started in June. I had pre-published that on my website, not that the mayor read my website, but uh, the first step is to just, let's do an assessment of where we are and to get all the council members involved. That was the important thing. Not an outside consultant, not tell the police department, but that they do it. And it was done in parallel with the Human Relations Commission. And uh, so that's complete unelected uh, civilian body. That step was good. Few things, few things more will come out of that, but we, we wanna get more concrete uh, in, terms, in terms of the actions taken. Um, shipping, um, just skipping over, so this is in our mind as we talk about this. Next year, there's another negotiation with the unions. And the unions have to understand, they have to come to the table as partners on a problem. They can't come to the table as adversaries on anything, uh, procedures, money, or whatever. They have to understand in this historic moment that there is a national problem and it may be in the jurisdiction right here. And we have had a couple of incidents that prove that there's at least isolated big time problems. So they have to come to the table willing to negotiate and not just lock horns and go away because we need some, uh, some way to get rid of uh, proven bad cops immediately. And we can't do that 100% of the time with constraints that are on the chief. And that's a bad thing. So that, that has to change. Um, moving back into the other area, I'm in the boat that one of the categories that, that you mentioned that I think there's a real valid argument for swapping out some sworn officers for some civilians who have particular skill sets that the officer don't, don't and vice versa. And that could be drug counselors, intervention counselors, social workers, it could even be um, folks that are just the community services officers that take the first call for uh, a noise violation. Uh, like a few years ago, my son's band was drumming in his room and uh, the police showed up at the door. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't offended about that, but I was offended that he probably had something better to do. My, my drums, drummer upstairs was noisy because I already knew that. So those kind of folks, you know, shouldn't kind of waste their time on nuisance. So, so by doing that, you get more skilled people in those roles. I don't know if you call that defunding the police, probably not, but you're reducing the costs there because these civilians aren't going to cost what, the, what these other folks are. And these guys are going taking over the traffic patrol, which we incorrectly cut uh, in the budgets. Um, so that, that's where I am on that. I am not into... I don't even like the word defund the police because too many people have too many definitions about that. Um, but I don't think you arbitrarily say, you know, take a third of the police budget away and, you know, cut back on that and spend that money over here. All right. Well, obviously there's a lot of controversy about, about this. I will say I'm, I'm taking a chance to tell every candidate, you know, I know as we're moving towards a can't wait as, as a community, you know, there are a lot, there's a lot of concern for folks around a can't wait that it really is a, is a is a window dressing statement for many police forces. I come out of San Francisco and they signed all eight and our the San Francisco Police Department is notoriously um, a lot of excessive force. Minneapolis signed six of eight. I mean, I think there's 
there's a sense that we really have to think deeply about cultural change versus kind of legislative things that are hard to back up. I mean, they're just hard to hold people accountable to. Um, but the hope, I hope that Palo continues to have these conversations because the numbers don't look good. Um, and we do have these incidences. So, but it's good. I'm glad. I mean, I, I think the interesting thing is everybody's talking about it. Like everybody is yeah. having to think about where, where do I stand? Yeah. Finally. Because Palo Alto, you know, I've talked, unless you're kind of, you know, unless you're brown or black in Palo Alto, you're not really being policed in the same way that you are in other communities. And that's great because folks don't, but now folks have kind of felt like, oh, what does this look like in other communities? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that folks have begun to see this. Um, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, climate change. Uh, tell me a little bit about, I know that you're going to be part of some panels in October around climate change, but Palo Alto, um, you know, I think is trying to, trying to uh, take the lead on some of this as a community. Uh, you know, getting by to what 20, 80% by 2030. I mean, really trying to move forward. Uh, where do you kind of, where you are with that movement? How do you think we're doing? Are there ways that we can improve that? What, where, what's your thinking around climate change in Palo Alto? Well, the 80 by 30 has taken a lot of focus and appropriately so, and really, really good effort and really good data collection. Um, they are, they are on target. Uh, so far, um, but the harder the harder ones are are, are ahead, which is the uh, reduction in single occupancy vehicles uh, to to drop greenhouse gases, and then uh, and then natural gas, which is also uh, you know not good for the environment. And those two are harder to uh, disengage from uh, because a lot of people want to drive their cars and commute in them, and then you know natural gas is you know preferred by a lot of cooks. Uh, and is in a lot of buildings already. So electricity is going into new buildings as a standard, and that will help. But the other two really need you know, mitigations. If we were to get there, we would not only lead the state, we would lead the nation in the um, you know, 80 by 30. It's aggressive. Some might say visionary, but we're going to need sort of both probably carrots and sticks uh, to, get people, to get people out of their cars. Uh, and or and or to at least reduce the uh, total amount of time that they're the total amount of miles that they drive. Yeah, yeah. It will be interesting as we as we emerge from this pandemic time with so many people uh, at home and and just a total culture shift around where where do we even need to drive? Uh, if if that changes a little bit, if we're people are now rethinking the necessity of uh, of of being in a in an actual geographical location. Like I've been to the church five times since March um, and, and everything is happening out of my office and my home. And, you know, businesses are now kind of saying you can work from anywhere and they're running into now issues around that. But right. like all these different things, it'll be interesting to see what that would look like. I mean, it may, there's some, might be some natural decline and then we just got to maybe push even more. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by some of the, I don't want to say benefit of the pandemic, but just effects of the pandemic that, we could use for some good. I think, I think there, I, 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 that's what I call them. I call them collateral benefits as opposed to collateral damage. Uh, and yeah. work at home is a huge collateral benefit. And the fact that, that, you know, uh, corporations pretty quickly have said, Oh no, we're going to continue that. Not, not, Oh yeah, but it's temporary. We can't wait to get back in the same office. Uh, it's just great. It's, you know, it's broader labor pool. People can live wherever they want and uh, yeah. they, don't pay all, they don't pay all that, um, money for real estate and, and feeding them three meals a day. 
Yeah. Well, it's funny. I've seen a couple of reports now that all the corporations, well, nobody should be surprised. And this wasn't, I don't know if they thought it was sneaky or not, but folks are like, oh, so I can make my Silicon Valley salary and I want to live in, you know, in the middle of Idaho. And they're saying, no, 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 you don't get, like, (laughs) there is going to be some adjustment if you decide to live somewhere else. I'm like, you'll still be fine. But uh, there is, so all of a sudden I'm wondering if it's going to be, living in so-and-so is going to be as quite as attractive anymore. But I know for a while people are like, I can live everywhere now. I'm like, well, yeah. if you choose. <laughs> yeah. But there, but the, some of the corporations are, are being very liberal in that transition. Uh, yeah. a, friend of my, a friend of my son. So that puts him five years out of college uh, has been working here as an engineer. And that company has put in, you know, forever, wherever you want to live is okay with us. So he wants to move to the Midwest. Uh, where his girlfriend is from now is now wife and they're saying well we are going to bring you down but we're going to do it three years from now oh well, three wow. years three years from now he could have better <laughs> he could have had two different jobs in the next three years so that's, that's like pretty no, good that's no constraint at all yeah yeah that's pretty good yeah, yeah uh, we're very fortunate the church owns a home in palo alto otherwise pastors could never really live in palo alto but um uh but it's amazing what we're doing you know because where our community is for the most part, transitioned seamlessly over to online worship and uh, it's folks have all made that transition. All around the world, poverty is stealing choices from kids. It's time to give those choices back. Introducing Chosen, World Vision's new invitation to sponsorship. For the first time, kids have the power to choose their own sponsors. Now the choice is theirs. The choice to take hold of their future, and even the choice to step into a life-changing relationship with you. Learn more at worldvision.org slash chosen. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money. Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. And uh, we've had memorial services online. We haven't had any weddings or anything like that yet. But, um, you know, folks are, we're adjusting. I mean, I think folks are now in this stage where this is, this is somewhat normal and we'll be okay. Um, which brings me to a question. So, uh, uh, what do you think would be the, the role of the faith community in, in the life of Palo Alto? I mean, I know I've, I've gotten to know my colleagues in, in various degrees. Um, there seems to be some interaction by few. Others are pretty, I wouldn't say absent, but aren't, aren't particularly involved. But what, what would you see as, as some of the benefits of having uh, faith communities more active in, in Palo Alto's um, kind of future? Uh, well, they, they have been already in the past. First, first put that on, on the table. And um, uh, that's ur- urban ministry that we merged with Envision was started by the faith community here and branched out for, from there. Right. And um, first, press, um, first Press was hugely involved with that from what I understand. So Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, a lot of churches are still participating in uh, Hotel de Zinc, which is part mm-hmm. of uh, Envision. They have a new name now, or at home, safe at home or something like that. Um, I can't remember it offhand, but, um, and so the ethically and, uh, religiously folks are motivated to help other people. 
And that's the drive that we need from faith and non-faith communities. And, and that's why the faith communities have been so helpful in feeding the homeless. They're now housing the homeless. Uh, they're making contributions. They're doing hunger drives. So it's, it, it's sort of the, the, the tip of the spear for making these kinds of, of uh, activities work. In, uh, homeless uh, RVs, uh, homeless folks living in RVs on the streets and, and now being able to, with city's help, and counties help uh, having sort of safe parking at night. And then some of these residences, as you know, residents uh, can stay in churches at night. So it's, it, it's wonderful. And they've been, they've been the drivers of it, these uh, churches, about a dozen churches in town. <clears throat> so. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's part of, um, uh, I, I'm hoping that communities continue to be involved in that way and, and find, continued partnerships that I always am that in that space of what is, what is the role of the church in social service and what, what is the role of our civil government in providing social service that churches shouldn't really like, that's not our, our job necessarily. Right. And how to, I, I know when a bunch of us were talking about the safe parking lots early on during the first round before pandemic, there was a city council basically said, okay, churches just go for it. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we need to test this out first. Like let's talk, there's also underlying causes for this that are creating this. So how do we work in some partnership to say, yeah, well, we, we have some energy around these things, but it, it can't be the, the, you know, this, this uh, thing that we, we cover all the things that, that our government is not able to do around social services kinds of things. So I'm always trying to figure out where, where in that tension do we sit and what's helpful and healthy. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't, you can't provide all the, the array of services that are needed by home, the homeless people. Yeah. You know, because yeah. Um, you know, in the chamber of commerce debate last night, there were some candidates that basically said, well, it's very simple. Just build affordable housing and all these are going to be off the street. Well, that's that, that is just not true. It's just not factually true because some people are, are in SUVs on, um, uh, I mean, no, SUVs, uh, SVs, anyway, camper trailers on, um, on the streets because they are, that's their home while they're going to their job. Yep. Other, other, other people are there because they can't, they, they can't find a job. Other people are there because they're alcoholics. You know, so there's a breadth of services that's needed to get these people on their feet and into housing and others you would put into a house and they don't want to be there. And so they leave after a while. So, I mean, that's just the, that's just the lay of the land that I know from my own work with homelessness. So. Yep. That's great. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, uh, what is, what's your, your vision for Palo Alto in the next five or 10 years? What, what are you hoping to, let's say you get elected, you serve two terms. What does this place look like uh, after it's had, it, had your stamp on it and your, the city council has moved in one direction, uh, what what does Palo Alto look like? Well, I think I think I'll I'll, I'll start it just as a starting point. We don't have to drill down on it yet, but I, I do think that we have to address this housing problem pretty substantially, and that that's going to take eight years, as you talk, <laughs> uh, not to start, God willing, but uh, you know to see results sprouting up in various neighborhoods is is, is going to take that long. So. Um, Somebody asked me that question kind of in reverse of when you look back, what, what do you want to see for your, your stature there, your, your uh, tenure there? And my answer was, I'd like to see um, a lot of housing up, um, starting with affordable, because that's just so desperate. And it's, it just, 
it's it, it just stamps the community is lacking and we are not lacking in so many other ways and this is just kind of stands out and and, and we need to fix that mm-hmm. um, but kind of going back to, to your question the second thing is is i would like to see a very uh cordial and fully functioning council which does not mean that they have to agree on everything i actually wouldn't like that i like differences of opinions but um, when the differences of opinions stay polarized throughout multiple council meetings and you can't find ways to get together and make a decision, then we aren't going to get affordable housing or combating sea, sea rise or anything we need. So, um, you know, there's some things on council that we have to figure out a way to, to work better, to prioritize better, to follow up with the city better, to make sure that things are getting done that we've asked them to get done. So those would be, I would say, my top. The third one I just oh, want to mention is, just, is basically climate overall, not just, not just uh, climate like sustainability, but you know, environmental control, because we have a lot of open space and parks and our tree canopy and so on. Uh, that doesn't just fix itself. You know, we got to make sure that we don't wreck it. So that's really important to me. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to the housing piece then. How do you, um, you know, some of the arguments are, well, we don't have enough money to uh, supplement what affordable housing needs. Others would say, well, there's a business tax possibility we could do. There's all kinds of options for how we, we see the funding around affordable housing, um, you know, deed restricted housing, however we want to talk about it. What are some of your ideas about how, do, how does this actually then happen? So let's drill down a bit. I mean, what are some of your ideas around that? Okay, so as I said before, it, has, it starts with land. And if there's a developer that doesn't own the land, it starts with land uh, because, you know, we got to go find a parcel that they can afford uh, to, to have their either ready to go and then do their project or, or whatever. So there's money is the second thing for, for, for land and then the construction. Um, the only way to get 100% affordable, virtually the only way to get 100% affordable building right now is through tax credits. And we have to have more options than that because that hasn't worked to develop a quantity of uh, affordable housing. So in terms of the things to finance that, now first I'll just talk about affordable housing. And that, and, and so, so the first one I think is a modest business tax because I think a bus- business tax is aligned with what businesses need. And that is housing for their lower paid workers. And some of them can't get the labor they need. Well, if they're living in town, because they got a house to live in, then they're going to have more labor. So I think that they're aligned on that. You know, usually when you use, you use the word tax, everybody stops and says, no, now tell me about it. And what I'm saying is that a tax here is a way to help your employees live next to or near your building. So I think we make the case that they should be aligned on that if the largest proportion goes to affordable housing. And the last time that a council, I think it was about, two years ago, penciled this out. They thought we could get 10 million a year out of a reasonable business tax. So that is one thing. There are also development fees in place that were raised by the council before and then cut back by the council now, fighting back and forth because the current council is more, you know, we don't want to tax developers, but then we can't get in affordable housing. So that, I think that's on the table. Um, of course, we don't want to take away any housing. So we need to legislate that to make sure that nothing goes away. Um, and then the, the last part, part on full projects is I truly believe for the same reason as a business tax that we should be having public private partnership discussions with major corporations that have people 
wanting to live here. And Google and Apple already have massive funds to do this. Google's about a billion and a half, although they want to control that, uh, a good portion of that. And Apple's about 400 billion. And they are putting up buildings and doing housing. And to my knowledge, you know, any of our council members have not been at that table. I don't get that. And I just mentioned the two because they're being done, but you know, a massive, uh, right now, unless he moves, a massive uh, uh, employer is Tesla, uh, which has offices in, in uh, Palo Alto. And you know, that's just an example of a large local corporation that would be incented to help houses build here. I think there are other you know, um, urban ways of do the, doing this thing, the equivalent of a bond fund that we can do. But now let me shift to partial. There's also partial affordable because uh, when, a, when units go up now, there's about a 15% inclusionary required for um, uh, sale of units. And I like to see that go up. I like to see it go up to 20 or 25. And we can even look at scaling it. The more you put in, some more goodies you get, whatever that is, to have a negotiation of to, in, in a mixed use project. Um, and mixed use is okay, but mixed use by definition means you're getting more offices now. And our fraction of offices to housing is so high that if you're picking this up a little and this up just a little bit more, it's going to take decades, not eight years of my terms uh, right. to get there. Uh, and, and, right. and there's more, but we, we have to be innovative with, with our partners to find new sources of funding because that's what it's about. Right. And that's, right. that's one Thank reason you. why it hasn't been very successful because it's the hardest segment to finance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I wanted to take some questions from uh, our Q&A. Folks, if you're watching, if you could put them in the question and answer, the reason we're asking you to do that is so that uh, folks can, so um, I'll read them off. Uh, Ed will be able to see them as well uh, so that we get a sense of, of questions that are coming in. So feel free to pop those into the, uh, the Q&A. Uh, the first question is, I'm going to hit there, is uh, from Margaret Fiddler. What's your thinking about various options for changes to rail crossings after electrification? The last two words might have changed the, my answer. You say after electrification. <laughs> that that was the question. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> so, so that's after, a, as that, you will. That, that's exactly the critical point um, because right now, because of their their problems and the coronavirus, their meaning Caltrain, Caltrain and the Corona problem means that even if they were up and running today, which they sort of are, you know, they're at five uh, percent capacity and ninety five percent empty, and between now and after the coronavirus is, is a certain amount of time, and between now and when they're gonna actually be able to upgrade those tracks is a certain amount of time. So I, I see this, you know, unfortunately, as years out before the sort of first possibility of, of having this as a, you know, an existential issue is, is, is really here. So relative to the current grade, grade separation, I, if I were on council, I'd say we should just pause that right now. Um, and by the way, Caltrain's has just announced that uh, just announced like three months ago about that they're going to do a new two-year study about this. So I'm not sure why we would be taking any action while Caltrain is doing a two-year study. So uh, the, the situations have changed entirely since the first city first started working on it. Sure, great. All right, next question comes from Patty Irish. What about working with Alta Housing, our local nonprofit? Uh, we, we we have before, and we would again. Um, but their, their uh, approach substantially has been the primary one of tax credits, uh, to, to my knowledge, unless that's changed in, in the last year. 
but we would, that, that's exactly what I mean by doing things with the communities. We would re reach out to them, people that specialize in that, and ask them, what do we need to do as a city to get more housing up? And, you know, if it's just money and not tax credit money, then we're kind of on the track of, you know, what I was already talking about. And if it's other things, that makes my list longer, which is great, of options right. Right. Of, of things we can do. Right. Great. Um, all right. Next one comes from Leif Erickson. Uh, last spring, the council almost cut all teen programs, including mental health and wellness programs at this stressful time for teens. So, some funding was restored, but not all. How do you balance spending for capital programs and community youth services? Yeah. I'm pausing because that conversation, even about cutting teen health programs, was stressful and even emotional for me to watch. Um, and I've said already in this campaign season that there are certain expenses in a city budget that are untouchable. And they're untouchable because it's the fundamental role of a community government, a local government. Um, one of those, for example, is you don't start taking money out of fire and police and don't know what you're going to do to backfill for ambulance brownouts or no traffic uh, um, officers and so on. The other one, which is more crucial, is um, exactly what you're talking about. Safety net. Safety net expenses cannot be cut. They're just, they're sacred, to use, to use the word, to me, because those are our, our most helpless people. Uh, when I was on the Parks Commission in community services, um, the, the, that outreach program was in, in their budget, so we would get we would get updates on that and so sad about the things that we got updated on. Um, so we were very rigorous in saying, keep, keep supporting these. Um, so if anything, I'd be looking for ways to spend more money there relative to the buildings. I know this is not a popular position, but I often take positions that are not popular. Um, we can live without buildings for a little bit longer. We can't live without these people who aren't going to be here if we don't help them. So, um, we did that in parks. If a park was needing refurbishment and we were short on money, which we were in this one certain year, we said, we're moving everything out two years. We're just gonna postpone replacing parks. Now you can't last forever. You know, you need the tennis courts resurfaced. You know, if, the, if there's a safety issue on the merry-go-round, you gotta fix that. Um, but we don't have to start putting up more parking lots or more infrastructure. Um, and we should push them out. We may have to do that this year if the revenue doesn't come flying back and we should push out buildings. We should never push out safety net programs. Great, thank you. All right, um, Patty Irish has one more. What do you think should be done with uh, Fry's, with the Fry's complex and uh, that whole space? Lots, lots of debate right now. Yeah, um, these are really good questions. What I wanna do with Fry's is not necessarily what the current owner wants to do with Fry's. <laughs> um, you know, the city is in very, you know, has been in serious discussions with them about what they want to do. Um, in general, again, conceptually, the city would like to have some housing there. And right now that current landlord, that doesn't fit their strategy. They wanna stay with their current zoning, uh, which allows uh, commercial there. Um, so, you know, one way or another over time, that, that really has to change. We can't just, times have changed. Our needs have changed. We don't need more office. I mean. And, and, or commercial and you know we're still getting along fine with basically no commercial right there 
So I think we can live without commercial there. There's also a, a proposal that, as you, you, you certainly have heard about, to put a, a small size target there. And, you know, some like that and some don't, but the ones that don't say we have target posts and we have other places to, to purchase. So I would like to try to prioritize to get some housing in that space. Uh, we should try to con uh, keep the historic building because it does have literally historic value as an old cannery and it's just kind of fun. Um, but it would be my priority and you know, it, it's not the landlord's priority, but I think we need to have more conversations with them. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, we're coming, coming towards our end. Um, and uh, let's, uh, well, Patty slipped one, Patty Iris slipped one back in there. I'm going to go ahead and, because she's a member of the church. It says current owner of Fry's has a comprehensive project with Reddy's Redwood City that includes housing. So maybe there's some leveraging there that at some point, because this will be the council next term. Should you get elected, that's the council that will probably make this decision. Can't imagine it's going to happen before that. So that's right. apparently they made some other deals according, according to Patty Irish. So, I'm glad to have um, that. All right. Tell her I have more, I have more leverage now. <laughs> uh, all know, right. I, uh, so I, I, I just want to make a statement that, sure. you know, I think I, I, I know I told you beforehand that uh, uh, back in the day I went to divinity school. And yes. That's what I did at Vanderbilt and studied uh, ethics, for example. And I, I feel that the basis of a county, I'm sorry, of a community government is ethical and value oriented. And it should stand for what the people stand for. And that's why I'm so, another reason I'm so high on this issue of affordable housing, because if the, if the people decide, decided that we don't want affordable housing, then they've made a different value statement than one of the reasons I came here. And I think it's important for us to sort that out and be honest with the citizens. Are we going to do this or not? Because if we're not, we don't look like a mixed Palo Alto like I came to. And you know, I didn't, I didn't, I intentionally didn't move to Hillsboro. So, you know, there's trade-offs there. No offense to Hillsboro. I don't actually know much about Hillsboro, but apparently, no, it's, be it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, it's yeah, I mean, really I think good. that is. I think. It feels like there's there is kind of this point now where there's a lot of talk about what Palo Alto claims itself to be, and and I, I as a new person I kind of feel like that is is a little bit of legacy and a little bit of kind of what we used to, but it's not the Palo Alto that I've experienced as a newcomer in 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 its kind of totality, um, and I think there is this question like we want more diversity beyond kind of this Asian white community that lives in Palo Alto. We want it and we want a variety of ways people live and work in the same city, but what are we willing, what are we willing to give up to, to do that? Like what are the trades that we're willing to make to live right. into this new version of Palo Alto that holds some of the values from the past? I, I think I, that's, I think it's, I think that's exactly the, the conundrum and I want that to be on the table and if we vote no on affordable housing, I want that to be broadcast to our citizens because we have to be straight with them. You yeah. know, it would not help the reputation of Palo Alto. I will tell you that. That's right. <laughs> it would. It would not be good. anyway. All right. We're so we're coming. We're coming to the end here. Um, so I always ask when I do these webinars, do you have any questions for me? Um. Well, you you sort of answered one, which is basically how can your faith community be um, involved in some of the problems in Palo Alto. Yeah. 
Well, our, our faith community is all up in civic government stuff. So all of our, a lot of our folks are involved in many, many campaigns and are at city council a lot. Um, we're co-hosting the climate change forum that you all are participating, or nine, nine of the 10 of you are participating in. So our folks are really always pushing. They're a very political group. Um, we believe our faith is in, is intrinsically po- political. Church and state are separate, but our faith compels us to be involved in the body politic. Um, and and now with Corona, all of our folks who would be out canvassing, doing get out the vote stuff, they can't be out. And so it's even more focused now. Folks are really involved with elections, League of Women Voters. There are a lot of people that are involved in League of, League of Women Voters from our congregation. Um, and then I'm, I'm bringing in a different element of this, doing these kind of interviews, getting involved in the community a lot more. I was pretty involved in San Francisco. So First Press is, is, is there and has continued to be there and hopefully draw some more people into action and activity. So it's okay. kind of what we're doing. And then the, ne- yep. the next question, I don't know where we are in time, but the next question is, yep. do, you, do you believe that these active, um, I mean, sorry, elected council members working sort of part-time um, should be setting the top priorities for this city or should they just give a fuzzy point of view and then have the city manager run it? I, I, I think, <laughs> this is a good question. So I think there's a balance between leadership and representation. And I do think council is ultimately the decision makers and you're, you're representing your community and constituency, but also helping a community constituency vision for its future. I mean, I think if you, I, my guess is if you put a vote to affordable housing right now in Palo Alto, it would go down. I don't know. I don't know how it's phrased. I mean, it just feels from my perspective, it feels like a very provincial town that is has a, a difficulty with new people coming in, and and so. But I think the council needs to push it on its on our own community to kind of say, here's what this looks like that's not threatening or scary, but it is going to require some sacrifice. So it's not as if it's a magic like here's what's going to happen, but uh, so I I I don't think it's the city manager's job to run and to do that visioning. I think city council does the visioning and the city then enacts that. And I know there's been a lot of controversy around some of that intention with, with over the years as I'm learning, but I, I think city council's job is to both represent those who put, who elected them, but also challenge that same constituency to, 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 to live into the values that we've been talking about and everybody talks about like right. there's consistency. Um, but I, it's, 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 it, I won't say waning. It's just not consistent enough across the board for us to really claim that this is who we are, at least from my experience so far, I'm a year in, I'm the new kid, you know, um, I'm annoying about that, but you know, I'm going to, I'm here for a while. So folks are well, going to have to put up with me. If, if, if they're not in on, uh, if they're not in on affordable housing, then I'm probably not into account. <laughs> I'm pounding that drum. And that's what I'm going to get done. Uh, one other question. All right. I, I, I have oh, yeah, one for you. When should the council not decide on an issue, but put it on the ballot? Oh, gosh. Because that's a great elected, question. Elected council, they can yeah. decide on more or less everything, but they sometimes choose to send it to the ballot. Like the last office staff 
down from 1.7 million to half of that. Uh, yeah. and, and now they're suggesting that that should be done on Foothills Park. Yeah, I, I think so, there are some things that are kicking the can down and there are some things that we need to make some prophetic, some kind of bold choices on for the good of the community. I, I, I think Foothills is one of those would be my, I, I think that's going to be, a, I, I'm not sure it would pass the way that I want it to. But so I, I, I don't know, that is a good question that I think folks are going to have to, to struggle with. But we're, we're at the end of our time. Um, okay. And I want to ask you, I have three questions that I ask everybody at the end to kind of get some breadth of who you are as a person. What are you reading? What are you watching? And what are you listening to? What am I, what am I reading? What are you reading these days? What are you watching these days? And what are you listening to? What I'm reading is uh, questionnaires that I have to fill out. <laughs> reading has been drastically uh, before I decided to run in the coronavirus, um, I reread uh, three uh, Roth books because I just love how he talks about the human condition and surviving that and values within the, the human condition. So that was what I was reading before I decided to run. What's, <laughs> the, what's the second one? What do I? Uh, what do you watch? What are you watching these days? No, nothing. <laughs> You're watching yourself read questionnaires. Is that what's? I watch this screen most of the day. And what are you listening to? Do you, are you podcast music? What, like, what, what do you put in your ears? You know, again, the, the question is almost nothing, unless for the few times that I jump in my car. Uh, this morning I had on uh, jazz when I went to an interview uh, that was, uh, 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 just forgetting the jazz guy, great uh, black jazz performer. Um, and, it was, and it was about uh, the blues. It said basically uh, sayonara blues. <laughs> Mm. that's good that's a good message well so the so the the takeaway is uh when this campaign season's over no matter what happens on the end you need to do more reading watching and listening at some point get plugged back in and outside of questionnaires all right right. well thank you all uh for joining us remember uh you can watch listen uh or sign up for previous or to see webinars register for upcoming dates by visiting www.fpresspa.org. Uh, you can connect with Ed on Instagram at elect Ed Lowing. He's also on Facebook and has a website. You can get all that information. Derek put that in the chat room. As always, you can connect with me on all the social media platforms at B Reyes Chow. Please be sure to follow and connect to First Presbyterian Church on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at FPC Palo Alto and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto. Thanks to Derek Kikuchi for helping out again behind the scenes on the webinar. And thank you, Ed, for sitting down with me today. It's a good service that you're providing. Thank you. Great. And again, thanks everybody for joining us. We'll see you on Friday when I sit down with Raven Malone. All right. Have a good rest of the week. BRC and Friends was produced, written, recorded, and edited by Bruce Reyes Chow with zero help from his dog Vespa. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to BRC and Friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow, like, tag, and share on all the platforms via B-R-C-A-N-D-F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Thanks for listening to BRC and Friends. All around the world, poverty is stealing choices from kids. It's time to give those choices back. Introducing Chosen, World Vision's new invitation to sponsorship. For the first time, kids have the power to choose their own sponsors. Now the choice is theirs. The choice to take hold of their future. And even the choice to step into a life-changing relationship with you. Learn more at worldvision.org slash chosen.
When you have a problem, Fox 12 gets you answers. The violence continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard. We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on. How can Fox 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com.